Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Hello everyone, this is Greg Masters, founder and managing director at Health Innovation Media. And for the fourth year in a row, Health Innovation Media was privileged to cover the Florida Association of ACO's annual meeting, interview and keynote faculty, session moderators, and other key industry luminaries. And in this segment, my colleague and co-host Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health LLC, chats with Richard Lucibella, CEO of Accountable Care Options. Dr. David Nace, Chief Medical Officer at Innovacer, and Florida State Representative Jason Broder, who leads several crucial committees, including the Government Operations Subcommittee and the Health and Human Services Committee. Hello, this is Fred Goldstein with Health Innovation Media, and I'm here at the Florida Association of ACO's 2018 annual meeting in Orlando, Florida, and I'm joined by Rich Lucibella, the CEO of Accountable Care Options. Welcome. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. So why don't you give us a little bit about your background? Well, um, I've been in the South Florida Medicare risk market for about three and a half decades now in uh, Medicare Advantage. We've been in the ACO space since 2012. Uh, In 2016, we we went risk with track three. In 2017 and 18, um, we've been next generation ACO. We've been fortunate each year and and had substantial uh, shared savings, and so we're very fortunate. Oh, that's fantastic. So you're one of the companies that's really stepped out versus most of the ones hanging back in MSSP1. And um, how large is your ACO? We are small by design uh, compared to most. We're about 12,000 Medicare beneficiaries in the ACO. For 2019, we'll have just about 60 primary care practices. We are primary care exclusive, and that's the way we manage the program. And that sort of fits with the recent results showing that ACOs that tend to be more successful are, are physician-started, physician-set-up. Yeah, I, I think that it's uh, that physician organizations tend to be more agile. They have less constraints on them than, than your hospital-based ACOs. So um, there are there are greater opportunities for us. We're we're more flexible in, in terms of rising to challenges and the like. And you've been able to show results, obviously, as you talked about, and you've moved all the way up to the, the newer models. There's obviously a push at the federal level to. Uh, move uh, ACOs to two-sided risk quicker. What would you tell them, given the advice that you've been able to achieve good results? Well, I think that, that they need to focus down, aim small, miss small, and, and focus down on stepwise transformation of practices. In our own case, all we asked our physicians for the first year is get your annual wellness is done. Get your annual wellness visits into the system so that you know the patients, you have a baseline for what needs to be done in terms of a care plan during the year. And then during the year, we come in to see if you're addressing that that care plan, help you to um, bring that care plan forward visit after visit. And in that manner, we hope to control, control the patients, control the cost of the patients. Fantastic. And as you've now moved beyond that, as you said, that was a year one initiative, what sort of things are you working on now? Well, we, it took us five years to move into um, chronic care management, transitional care management. We now have a corporate team of very robust 
um, chronic care management, transitional care management professionals. We gear it around paramedics who are, are um, willing to go into a patient's home. They, they are very well trained. It's run by a, a nurse practitioner. We have RNs on staff. We have the entire uh, pharmacy faculty of Nova University that helps us. They're embedded with us. And a huge part that we brought in in 2016 is behavioral health. That becomes a huge issue in the post-acute area for patient needs. Well, that's fantastic. Exciting to hear that. Behavioral health and mental health is uh, an area I like to focus on a lot. It's a critical one that often is sort of ignored, but you've also, as you said, brought that in. Yeah, I think it's, it's necessary. Your, your individual primary care physician can't afford to have a pharmacist on staff or a behavioral health person on staff, and he doesn't have the wherewithal to partner with other, other docs to make part-time use of a full-time, full-time employee. To the extent that we've been fortunate and we've gained shared savings and we have some money to pour back into, into the infrastructure, we're able to provide that service. So that now each of our physicians has access to behavioral health, to pharmacy. Um, I, I can't overemphasize the education component provided by the pharmacy faculty uh, with patients, patient, uh, medication adherence, uh, medication reconciliation. It's, it's really been a big help to us. So. We're coming towards the end of the, this year's conference. Any thoughts on it so far? Well, I think it's the best conference we've held. It, it, it is truly the best conference we've held. I find that the um, people coming are, are even more collegial than they have been because we're getting to know each other better. They're, they're more relaxed. And most important, they're, they're far more mature in terms of their understanding of, of what we're up against. We're a fledgling industry, and we're kind of building this plane in flight and learning as we go. And the, the attendees this year are... are um, have a much greater depth of understanding in terms of the questions we're asking and and I really appreciate that I've learned a ton. Yeah I think it's interesting you pointed out not only the questions asked as you said because it is an industry that now there's a substantial knowledge base here and I found that the individuals were willing to share that you know it was no longer this theoretical stuff there's some real world data real world concepts that came through in this conference loud and clear and obviously huge growth this year um, in terms of attendees. Yes, absolutely. I think that um, uh, we are looking at, at where we're going. The, the acceleration to risk for a lot of these plans is a, is a huge wake-up call, and as a result, they're starting to look at such, such fundamentals as what is the definition of shared savings being defined by this benchmark that isn't always a bright... We're finally understanding that the benchmark is not necessarily some bright line between, the, between losing money Money, increasing costs and decreasing costs. It may be something other than that, depending on where you are geographically and what your what your population mix is. And I understand you're also on the the association's board. Yeah, I'm. I'm proud to be um, a board member of, of Florida Association of ACOs. Been here since uh, 2015, and and um, intend to continue. It's a great organization. It is. So you can tell us a little bit about some of the benefits of being a member. Of being a member, well, it, just the exchange of ideas, um, uh, whether it be uh, the the newsletters, emails that we get. Um, certainly on the board level, at a, uh, we meet very regularly. But I come to these these um, uh, uh, these conventions, these conferences, if you will, and I learn a ton. We have people from from the payer mix. We have 
um, colleagues and competitors that are that are um, opening the curtain to what they're doing. We have people from CMS that are telling us what's going on in from a policy standpoint, what to expect. Um, it it's just a real treasure trove of information and ideas for us. I haven't I haven't had a single idea of my own that I've implemented in RACO since 2012. Not one. I've stolen every single one of them from somebody else, and I'm I'm proud proud to say that. So you're one of those unique birds, ACO, do Medicare Advantage program as well. Obviously, Medicare Advantage is maybe a little bit of a different beast. I was discussing that with some people this morning. Um, how have you made that work, and what do you see about some of those things in terms of the hospitals and the doctors you then involve in that full-risk deal? Well, actually, actually, Fred, that's a really, really good question. We started, uh, perhaps upside down from others, we started by taking our, our known Medicare Advantage performers into the ACO in 2012. 5,600 patients just made the cutoff and they did extraordinarily well in this fee-for-service based program. And from that we expanded out bringing in um, pure fee-for-service practices and we use our Medicare Advantage, our, 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 I don't even want to say Medicare Advantage, our physicians who understand pay for performance, we use them as champions to help educate and bring along the other physicians who may not have been been steeped in this in this type of um, uh, reimbursement methodology, and that is that's that's helped us a great deal in growing from that 5,600 to where we are at 12,000 now. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for having me. Hello, this is Fred Goldstein with Health Innovation Media, and I'm here at the Florida Association of ACOs 2018 Annual Conference, and I'm joined by someone I've known for quite a while, an expert in a lot of fields around medicine, David Nace, the chief. Medical Officer for Novacer. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. Pleased to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So tell us a little bit about your background and then a little bit about the company. So I'm a physician. I've been in healthcare trying to solve this problem of, of population health for quite some time. Uh, UPMC, born and bred, health plan, went to Optum, then to McKesson, chasing technology, and then went out to California to learn about sort of Google, Amazon, all these next-gen companies, and ran into these three founders from Innovacer. Really cool technology. So what does Innovacer actually do with their technology? So if you think about all the companies we know and love, Netflix, Uber, Lyft, they think about their data first. So we're a data company. We're a data platform company. Well, that means a lot of different things to different people. What we do is create an ecosystem that the data is all together in real time and can help support all the players in the ecosystem, doctors, administrators, care coordinators, patients, their caregivers, and make it intelligent and help them make decisions. And um, who are the typical clients? So currently, people who are interested in population health are ACOs, clinically integrated network, health systems that are kind of moving in the pop health environment, and payers who are interested in collaborating with providers and health systems. Those are our clients. And having known you for a while, you've worked for a lot of different companies, have incredible broad expertise, I must say. So what do you see that they're doing that's got you excited? Because I can tell, as I've talked to you earlier, you're excited about this company. So we've all known for a long time that data is going to be the lifeblood of our existence. But the problem is, is many people don't trust the data and they don't know what use to make of the data. So think about outside of healthcare, right? We all have one of these in our pocket, mm -hmm. right? We trust the data that we see here. In fact, it tells us what to do. Have you used Google Maps when you drive someplace? Absolutely. Right? When you look up a phone number on Google, do you trust it? 
Absolutely. So the key is having high quality data in real time available when you need it, then people learn to trust that data. So that's the secret sauce. The quality of the data is extremely high. We're using machine learning to ensure that and automate it. But then we tee up the insights and provide each player in the healthcare arena the workflow, the action step that they should take based on that. So just like Google Maps, they know to turn right when there's been an accident that Waze just tells them just occurred because they'll get a faster route that way. We do that for healthcare. And so it sounds like you've done that sort of across the spectrum of users because obviously a physician may need a different look at that data set versus another group like a care manager or something. Is that sort of what you've set That's up? That's exactly right. So in the beginning, we're a four-year-old company growing very fast. We're about 350 employees. Um, yeah, we're in 14 states. Uh, we've got payer customers, client customers, about 10 million lives that are currently managed by our clients with our platform. We bring data in from everywhere. So we tee that data up to really provide it in terms of helping people make those decisions of what to do. And then on top of that, we build applications. And those applications on top of that data could be analytics, care coordination, care management, physician engagement, that's a tough one, and then patient engagement, which has always been the holy grail. And then lastly, how do you automate the provision of healthcare? So, thinking about artificial intelligence and how you can provide automation of the practice environment, integrate the Internet of Things, and then provide this sort of real-time environment that allows doctors to really focus on taking care of patients, not typing in an EMR. And you've talked about some of the buzzwords, you know, the AI, machine learning. So it sounds like you built it's built into this platform. How is it being used and what's it sort of uncovering? So I don't want to get a little too techy. Um, you know, it's funny, a lot of us here were saying that you go to a conference like HIMSS or where a lot of tech people are, and each year there's a buzzword, yeah. and people put the buzzword over the last year's signage yeah, to say that's what they do. the booths have the buzzword. <laughs> so, you know, I understand that these languages are um, the current buzzwords. Right. Um, so it's important to understand what it is we do. So we're automating the process of taking data from someplace and mapping it to a common data model. And the, we're about 40% machine learned now, we think we can get up to 70%. Meaning the humans, the people aren't having to go in and do that interoperability mapping each time they go in. The machines, each time they see a new system, they know because they've been to one similar before and can do most of it automatically. That's machine learning. The artificial intelligence says, let's give an example, Physicians are hard to engage, so we want to meet them where they're at today. You're working on your EHR, you're seeing patients. Our system can detect, agnostic to the EHR, what patients you're actually thinking and working on, and it'll slide in like a little post-it note, some useful information that you are unaware of. So for instance, from the payer, somebody else wrote prescriptions. They were in the ER three times last week. Um, there's some care gaps that need to be closed that your care managers are working on that they need your help with. Or coding gaps, because coding becomes so important that they see in your text-based notes or that were dropped from a prior year or that another doctor did. It's just there for them to act on. As they're working, they can look, ignore it, or act on it in their workflow. But the system, artificially, artificial intelligence, detects what they're doing and what they need to know. And so, in essence, it's feeding this prescriptive information to them that maybe you want to be doing this. 
That's a great example. So let's say you want to make a referral. You're working in your EHR, you're talking to the patient, and you say, I want to refer you to a cardiologist. I'll send you to my good old buddy Joe, right? Yeah. Little slider comes in and says, within X distance from that patient, whatever you and the patient decide, these are the Yelp-like ratings of the cardiologist in your neighborhood. Three-star quality, four-star quality, $1 sign, $2 sign, $3, $4 sign, maybe a patient satisfaction score, and suddenly it's like x-ray to the doctor. My buddy Joe, why does he have $4 signs? And why is his quality score too? Well, I helped decide, because we customized those, what those quality scores should be. So that results in the golf course conversation. Like, Joe, what's up? I didn't know you were so expensive. We went to school together. Do I have to keep referring to you? Let's have a conversation. That's fantastic. It really is. And um, you've got some new announcements. You've got an advisory board you formed. I know you can't announce them all, but you've made a couple of really big name folks. So, you know, knowing people like yourself and many people in the industry, I've really gotten to really be honored by knowing some of the biggest, most influential people in the industry over the past 20, 30 years. Um, I think this is the greatest technology that I could have seen come to healthcare in a long time. It really is the technology of Netflix, Uber, Uber, but brought to healthcare. So I've gone out and reached out and exposed some of my colleagues. So we just announced Dr. Glenn Steele, who obviously notable fame of building out Geisinger Health Plan and then also training many of the other icons like Rick Gilfellan and so on and so forth. Um, we can announce that Dr. David Nash, the often called the Pope of Population Health, exactly. uh, the first founder of the School of Population Health, the College of Population Health at Jefferson, has now come on as an advisor. Uh, my good friend, Dr. Paul Grundy, former CMO at IBM and the godfather of the Patient Center of Medical Home, has <laughs> been on board now for a couple months, uh, helping us kind of connect us. They're all really excited about what we're doing. I've got a couple more I haven't announced yet, and they're all friends. So they're all working together with Innovacer to try to figure out how can I make healthcare really empowered with data at this point. So David, there's a lot of transition going on in the ACO world, a lot of questions, do they work, do they not work? Sort of how are you looking at that issue? So it's very interesting. ACOs were set up to be a kind of an on-ramp to the highway of risk, right? It's been slow. People start up the on-ramp and they're like, well, I'm not sure if I want to go up there or not, which is the issue that people talk about. I think this administration and CMS is, as the leader in this, is trying to figure out how to move people quicker off that dime. So at NACOS just two weeks ago, we heard two very interesting things. Rick Gilfillan, who founded it, said, hey, let's move everybody to 80% upside and 80% downside as a requirement to participate in the CMS program. That'll get people moving. <laughs> that might be a little fast. Um, we also heard from the current head of CMMI saying, we want to eventually, in our lifetime, eliminate fee-for-service as a mechanism for payment from CMS. These are pretty strong statements. So lots of initiatives coming out. The question people want to know is, if I move into risk, can I handle it? So this is one of the things that Innovacer is, if you have accurate data, financial and administrative and clinical data that you trust, that guides you, that gives all of the players in the ecosystem the steps in a coordinated way, what we call an orchestration engine, to be able to manage the patient care and the costs. Then you can truly achieve that, and that's why we're excited about what we're doing here at Innovacer. 
So in essence, it's about this, the, the platform is is coordinating their ability to effectively manage the risk by identifying what they need to do and the workflows to do that. So this is the key thing. This is the complicated part about healthcare in America. There are multiple private payers, multiple prior providers, multiple patients. There are caregivers that work with the patient that haven't even been included. There's all these community agencies that can address the social, economic, and behavioral aspects of care, which we now know are the big drivers. How do you get all of those folks connected, working on the same page, with the intelligence to guide them in an orchestrated way to come to a certain point? That's the key, is how do you get them all playing together around the financial and clinical aspects to manage the risks? And that's what I think technology is finally bringing us. Go back to this. We trust this to tell us where to go, how to book an air flight, whatever we want to accomplish. The technology is here. We just need to bring it to healthcare. It's here. And that's what we're excited about what we're doing in our company. So David, you mentioned the socioeconomics, mental health, and these other issues. Everybody today is sort of talking social determinants of health. Tell us your perspective on this. That's a great question. So I get a little worried when people are using these bud words of the year, social determinants of health, which is outstanding work that initially at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We know that for chronic diseases, socioeconomic factors drive a huge portion of their costs and their outcomes for care. We also know from the same studies that the behavior of the individual contributes to that, and we all know that. We have a hard time, we join a gym in January, two weeks later we stop going even though we paid for a year. So behavior change is hard. My own journey is I started in primary care and I went back and did another residency in psychiatry, not because I was interested in psychiatric disease, and granted, depression, huge driver of cost. I was interested in why people behave the way they do. So I would ask people with congestive heart failure, do you know what to do? And they'd say, yeah, I should probably stop eating salt, not drink as many fluids, take my meds on a regular basis, see my doctor on a regular basis. I'd say, well, why don't you do that? And they would be puzzled and say, that's a good question. So I think these are the issues we need to tackle. How can we integrate into the community, because these things aren't on the fee schedule, and engage people with technology and data, the patient, the caregivers, the community agencies, the health system, and have them work together to address these factors as one cohesive unit. Not the way we used to think about healthcare services, but in a new world of community healthcare services. I think that's the answer. So Innovacer, it's an interesting name. How'd they come up with that? So, Three young founders from India, from the best IIT Institute, just like the founders of Google came from and Uber, the folks that make these technology miracles possible. They think about their data first. It's a data first company. Get all the data in one place real time, make it empowered, and you can innovate on it. Innovation accelerator, data first. In the world you and I know, it's about buying applications, which are fixed with their data underneath them, and they're always gonna be that. You don't evolve. Innovation Accelerator, just like companies we know, like Amazon, they accelerate their innovation so fast, you don't ask what products are they making, you watch new miracles happen, and that's what we're hoping to bring to healthcare. Innovation Accelerator. Innovation. Well, thank you so much for talking about Innovator, and where do people go to find out more about the company? Thanks for asking, Fred. 
Just go to www.innovacer.com. Tell them you're interested. There's a link right there, and we'll catch you. Hello, this is Fred Goldstein with Health Innovation Media, and I'm here at the Florida Association of ACOs annual 2018 conference in Orlando, Florida, and I'm joined by Jason Broder, a state representative who also chairs one of the health committees. Yes, thank you very much for having me. And this morning you spoke about Medicaid. And first, maybe explain a little bit how the Medicaid program is set up in Florida, because it's different from other states, and some decisions were made about managed care, et cetera. Sure. Medicaid in the state of Florida is actually a managed Medicaid system in which we uh, put out for bid in 11 different regions um, managed care companies to come and deliver the Medicaid business. And uh, in each of those 11 regions, they compete. They offer us a very uh, broad range of services and in many instances, things that we didn't even realize they could afford to provide but do. Uh, and we make sure that there are at least two providers in every region, so there's choice. And um, they then will, uh, for the next five years, provide Medicaid services to all the Medicaid-eligible individuals in that region. And prior to that, it really was kind of a hodgepodge, wasn't it, of different service providers and organizations? Yeah, I think we ended up here um, because we had so many pilot programs. You know, Florida very frequently has said that we're um, three different states. We're so diverse that we have a panhandle population, we have a central Florida population, we have a south Florida population, all of whom look different, both from a, a habit standpoint as well as a demographic background standpoint. Uh, and so we really needed something that had the flexibility to meet the needs of all of our citizens. When you try to manage that from a state perspective, you end up with 25 pilot programs and 16 different formats, uh, and it was really impossible for us at the state level to know what we were getting. So I think this really came out of frustration from us to say, are we really getting what we're paying for? And so given that, as you look at where the state's at today from this perspective, what are some of the things you could point to and say, hey, we feel like this has been a good idea because we've got the following results or areas you see as improvements? I think what, what the, the big takeaway is that um, we just received our highest HEDIS scores uh, ever. And that was resetting a mark that we had set last year, which reset a mark that we had set the year before that. So when we look at everything from um, treatment and outcomes of pregnant women to uh, how our, we're delivering care to our senior citizens, we feel like we're, the, the tide is rising really for all boats. And I think that's something some people don't really recognize, having done some Medicaid work myself, is you've got both ACA and the Department of Insurance sort of overlooking these, and they have various quality measures and data these plans need to be submitting. And I think one of the advantages of this is that it forces these plans to compete with each other they know that they're only getting a certain rate. It's a capitated rate. Uh, if they can keep people well, they cost less. So we're finally aligning the incentives of the state with the incentives of the member or the patient or the Medicaid uh, uh, recipient themselves, which is they don't want to be sick. Nobody wants to be sick. So if we can incent that they're provided the right services to the right person at the right time, that makes everyone happier. And I know as a uh, as a Medicaid plan, obviously you're working with folks in lower socioeconomic groups, et cetera. You talked about them offering additional services and things like that. So what sort of things are you seeing in the state? One of the things that surprised us most on the last round of bidding was that one of the plans offered equine therapy, which is horseback riding. Yeah. I have one of the richest plans, as a government employee, I have a, one of the richer plans, I don't get equine therapy. So I th we're seeing a lot of really creative ways to help a lot of folks who may um, be looking at disease states that their family's not familiar with. There may be some times when they don't have permanent access to the internet and can do the research that's necessary. So plans are realizing that and providing a breadth of uh, services to be able to help folks get to their best self. 
And that brings up another important issue in Medicaid, which a lot of people don't recognize. There's a large amount of individuals with mental illness or suffering from behavioral health issues in Medicaid. So, and you talk about equine therapy. So, is, how is that handled? Is that integrated within the plans now? Yes. Yeah, so, the way that um, the individual would uh, go about it is that they would sign up with that managed care plan. Uh, the state then pays the managed care plan, and the managed care plan would then uh, provide services to that individual. The nice thing is that they don't have to contact multiple agencies in order to get those services. With managed care owning that, that then means that um, whether it's the doctor visit, the prescription, any of the wraparound services, that's all handled by that same plan. Um, very frequently we have folks that have a number of different service needs within their home and if they have to go to uh, one agency then they have to go to another. There's nobody that is really good at coordinating that sort of thing. So this actually helps reduce some of the stress level too. And given that it's now through a managed care organization, from a budgeting perspective, I would assume that makes it a little bit easier for the state to sort of project what their cost could be versus when it was all fee-for-service. It does. The biggest projection that we have now is how many new people are moving to Florida. Um, we're very fortunate in that we have created an environment that a lot of people want to come to. But what that necessarily means with an entitlement program like Medicaid is we have to accurately estimate how many people that are going to qualify are going to move into the state. We don't have to anymore estimate exactly what utilization they're going to need because we have already put that into our rate, and that's the set rate. And you've got some healthcare background you talked about a little bit in your presentation this morning. Are there things you're looking at coming down the horizon or down the pike that you'd like to see put into Medicaid? Or are there areas that excite you about what's happening in the healthcare industry? I think telemedicine is going to be the place that really allows access to improve. We know that when more people have more access, their providers have a chance to decrease the cost by, by preventing events. And so particularly, we mentioned before what kind of increase their need there is around mental illness. I would love to be able to see a lot more psychiatrists come online to be able to have a lot more access at a lower cost for those that need those services. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Thank you very much for having me. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.